Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Remember we left off in our last session from Daniel chapter 10. I said I didn't have time to unpack it. I just wanted to introduce it into your thinking so that you would have it in your mind and we would return to it this session. Because what we're talking about is the prayer of importunity, which is kind of a fancy word for persistence, but it's more than persistence. It's importunity carries with it the the understanding of a, for lack of a better word, desperation. It's and, and I'll say more about desperation later. But in Daniel chapter ten, verse one and two, it says, "In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia." A revelation was given to Daniel, and the revelation was true, but the time for its unfolding was long. Now, there are several different variations of this verse, as is often true, especially in the book of Daniel. None of the variations contradict one another. They all complement one another. Some translations will say that the time was going to be far in the future. Another translation would say the time will take a long time to unfold. Uh, But basically what you have here is Daniel being given a revelation of something that will cause him to set himself up for a long battle. I want to talk to you today about setting ourselves up for a long battle battle. Long? How long? As long as it takes. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 6 and 7 says, I have set watchmen upon your walls, O Jerusalem, who shall never hold their peace day nor night. You will make intercession before the Lord. Do not keep silence and give him no rest till he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Obviously, this verse is not saying we need to keep pestering God because he's really not interested, and so we must make sure that he keeps focused on making Jerusalem a praise in the earth. This is a poetic way of saying we care about what he cares about so much that we seem to pester him with the repetition of our plea for his will to come to pass. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew chapter 7 says, ask and keep asking, and it will be given you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, and knock and keep knocking, and the door will be opened. In Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 13, uh, this entire portion of Scripture is Jesus teaching us about prayer. These verses give some of the most basic teaching from Jesus on prayer in all of Scripture. And of course, you'll recognize that this is what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. Uh, John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. But this prayer is a, a prayer given to us by the Lord as what was understood in in. Uh, Jewish parlance as an index prayer. It is not meant to be a poem we recite over and over by rote, although I believe God is so loving and so patient and so good to us that he will respond to us even if we pray in a rote way, as long as there is the slightest reality of it moving inside of us as we pray. But what he meant for us to do was to use each phrase of this prayer as a means of gathering up under each topic our own expression to him of our longings and our needs. The Aramaic text begins with not our Father, but simply with Abba, Papa. But Jesus is saying both with our Father and Abba, you are our very own and we are your very own. 
our Father which is in heaven would be more fully developed to say, you fill all creation and yet you are as close to us as our very breath. Then holy is your name. Well, expand that a thousand, a thousand different ways. There is nothing or no one in all the universe like you. Who is like unto you, O Lord, among the gods? Majestic in holiness. He's not just saying, say, holy is your name. And so I say, well, holy is your name. Don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful thing. And I love to hear it sung. And I love to hear it quoted as long as we don't, like I said, just get into the rote habit and don't even understand what what was supposed to be uh, communicated by it. Holy is your name means there's no one like him. And we can go off into worship and praise for uh, a long time just on that phrase. Then give us this day our daily bread would be better understood. You know what I need for this day, so please supply that, whether it's natural food or spiritual food. Forgive us as we have also been forgiven deals with how we deal with others and how we want others to deal with us, including God. And then guide us so that we will not enter into a time of great testing. Lead us not into temptation. Uh, I, I can't comprehend some of the commentary I've heard lately about uh, lead us not into temptation needing to be adjusted so that people aren't confused by it. Obviously, God doesn't lead us into temptation. Um, the idea here is guide us so that we do not end up in great testings th that we foolishly entered into from our ignorance. Guide us. Protect us from, from temptation. And then keep us from the hour of trial, the great hour of trial. Mentioned in Revelation chapter 3 about the great hour of trial which will come upon the face of the whole earth. Keep us safe in the midst of that trial. Now, just as it is a trap to turn this into a rote quotation, in the other extreme, it can be a trap to turn this into a legalistic list. We must be careful to not get out of order or to go off on streams that may not be included in the topic. Oh, you can't pray about your anxiety over the conversation you've got to have with your boss. We are only praying now about hallowed be thy name, so forth. It's a very common thing for otherwise clear-minded people to get suddenly all uptight about rules and order and such like when it comes to prayer. We want to be reverent, but we also need to be free. Free as a child in his father's arms. So Jesus goes on then to expound on that very topic when he goes on to say in Luke chapter 11, uh, that just as a child does not fear asking for fish, is afraid that his parent would give him a snake instead. So we are not to fear, but come trusting and dependent and knowing that we are loved and asking. So Matthew 7, ask and keep asking. It's quoted again here in Luke 11 in this context. Ask and keep asking. Then he tells the parable of the man who comes to his friend's house after it's very late, after midnight, actually, and without any sense of shame, knocks on his door and asks for help, seeking to get the supplies he needs for an unexpected guest who has come. So in this, we have all three, asking, knocking, seeking. And in the story, Jesus has the needy man unashamedly asking, knocking, and telling what he needs through the closed door. And he points out that it is not their relationship that is the deciding factor in this scenario, but it's in the persistence. It's not because they are friends, though they are, but that the needy man 
didn't give up. That's the point of the story. He kept on and kept on and kept on. And the result was that his neighbor finally rose up out of bed and gave him all that he needed. Um, And the idea is that though he was his friend, he didn't respond the first time. But because the guy was persistent, finally the the his friend gets up and as a result then the supply door is open fully well how would it have been if he had just very timidly tapped and said are you awake and realized it was late and then timidly went back to his house he wouldn't have got what he wanted he was unashamedly motivated by the desperation of the situation this story is meant to set firmly in our thinking this sense that we are depending on not on our relationship, but that relationship that is strong enough to bear up under the weight of a certain kind of desperate persistence. And in this kind of praying, it is the persistence that matters more, really, than the relationship, if I can say it that way. In this kind of praying... It is the persistence. And when I say that we're desperate, we're not desperate in the sense of begging God because God is really reluctant and he's really our enemy. For God is never our enemy. On the contrary, our relationship can bear the pressure of our persistence because we are, we are both, God and ourselves, we are both seeking the same thing. The destruction of evil and the victory of good. What Jesus wants us to get from this is that if we are in that relationship, we are going to find that we have the same longings and desperate desires for the same goodness to be manifested that our Father has. And it is our strength of care for what is valuable that is being tested in the struggle to obtain that seems unobtainable. We must not give up. You see this illustrated in the encounter of Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, whose little girl is demonized. She comes to Jesus asking for healing, and to our Western ears, his reply seems worse than rude, even cruel, when he refuses to help her and seems to walk away. But he must know she understands what's at stake before he'll answer her. And not asking for just a magic rabbit's foot, so to speak, of temporary relief. So he tells her he has come to only give food to the children of Israel who have ears to hear and heart to understand and receive. But to the Canaanites, they're like, quote, little dogs who will eat anything. They have no discernment because they worship demons instead of Yahweh. And so he he won't respond to her. But her child is demonized because the Canaanites are demon worshipers, and he's testing her. And when she answers, yes, but even the little dogs get the crumbs, Jesus sees that she is discerning who he is, and what is real, and what is right, and grants her request. What if she had taken his first refusal as the final word and walked away? It was her persistence that won the day for her. There are elements of this same demand for our exerting persistence, which are illustrated in two scenes from the Hebrew Scriptures. We've looked at both of these scenes before. You're familiar with them. The first was when Aaron and her have to hold up Moses' arms during the battle uh, in Exodus chapter 17. For there was a direct connection between how the battle went and how persistently Moses stayed in a posture of intercession with his arms raised. Now, the Holy Spirit is teaching us through this story. It's not for us to keep our arms up in the air or any other such physical thing in order for our prayers to be heard or effective. But at the same time, we have to listen to the Lord even in that. It may be in certain circumstances we do have to maintain certain persistences. I tell you, I've I've had experiences in intercession 
some over individuals, but quite often over national issues, where I was physically engaged by the Holy Spirit. I, I could have resisted, but I didn't want to. Uh, I was stomping and breaking things with my feet or reaching up with my hands and grabbing hold of something and tearing it down over and over and over. And I persisted in those motions until I sensed the Holy Spirit was finished using my body, soul, and spirit for an instrument of his purposes in that battle. The other story is in Second Kings 13 when King Joash comes to Elisha to ask about the coming battle against the Assyrians, the Syrians, not the Assyrians. Again, to our Western ears, this is a strange story. But for those who live in the Spirit, it, it makes clear sense. Elisha tells Joash to take his arrows out of the scabbard and to strike the ground with the arrows. And Joash does that. He he just does what he was directed to do. He struck the ground one time, two times, three times. Then he stopped. Elisha became angry and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have completely annihilated your enemies. But now you have only struck three times. You will have not have the inner drive to bring this battle to complete closure. You will continue to have wars. Now, we must be careful here not to get introspective and go off on any tangents and end up hurting ourselves by overly identifying with the exact theme of these two stories. But, like I just said, at the same time, we must not err on the other extreme and disregard these truths. Just how desperate are you for the thing that's in your heart and mind? Are you willing to go into prayer battle over them and once engaged? Are you willing to express yourself to God with a tenacity of faith, a desperation, and a persistence that will not give in to circumstances or appearances or seemingly contrary evidence? And are you willing to strike the ground over and over and over and over and not just passively hit at it? while then just giving up? One of the factors that we see when we read in Daniel chapter 10 was that his desperation was manifested in a 21-day partial fast. Fasting is a great energizer of prayer. It's a way of letting your body join your heart and your mind to bring you into full unity of personhood in prayer. Daniel didn't set aside 21 days to pray. He was just praying and it happened to be on the 21st day of this partial fast in prayer that there was a breakthrough in the invisible. But Daniel's mundane earthly activities had set a spirit war in motion in the invisible realm. And his persistence was the deciding factor. The angel said, Daniel, I have come because of your words. The prince of the power of Persia withstood me for 21 days, and I was able to finally break through and come to you because Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and opened the way for me to come. Uh, there are important realities in that story that I hope you will take time to really read and chew on and meditate on and imagine that will help you get past the, the lie that the devil often uses on God's people when they go into prayer that you're a waste of time, you're of no account, your prayers don't matter, yada, 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 all that stuff. Uh, anyway, these stories apply to any time in our lives but they especially apply to those who are living in a great period of spiritual transition, as Daniel was. Manifested in world-altering events like we are now. And Lord willing, you will be hearing this message right before the U.S. election, 
the most decisive election for or against freedom and truth in the entire history of the world, including the war between the states. So if ever there was a time for us to be persistent, clear, desperate, and focused in prayer, it's now. And by the way, it's not just happening in America. This is this this great movement toward real freedom and the exposure of long-term political wickedness and the oppression of the poor and uh, sex trafficking, all these things. God is raising up uh, Cyrus's like he raised up Donald Trump. He is raising up Cyrus's in many other nations at the same time. This is, we're moving beyond the battle for the West into the great final battle for the end of the age. I don't know how long that battle will take. I may not see it fulfilled in my day, and I'm, I'm laying the foundation for my children and my grandchildren uh, to carry it on until, uh, until the battle is completed. Um, well, if ever there was a time for us to be persistent and clear and desperate and focused in prayer, it's now. And if you need help to add power to your cry for justice and truth, fasting in whatever form you are able to enter into it will be a great help to you. With that said, let us look at Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18 as a blueprint for helping us understand the need to stay in faith when things seem to be going opposite of what we're crying out for. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Again, I hope you'll take the time to read it on your own. This parable will help us a lot if we're willing to unpack it and understand the long-range answers it provides. If we want fast, easy responses, we will be frustrated. So let's get ready to dig into this in some detail. It's especially needed in our current battlefield of life. There was a very well-known teaching from Ben Sirach, which everyone would have recognized during Jesus' day. Everybody knew it. Jesus knew it. He knew they knew it. But Jesus tells it, but then he changes it. And that's very important for us. Because Ben Sirach has, after, uh, after describing the wicked, unjust judge and calling the hearers to keep demanding justice, closes his version of the story like this. He says, And the Lord will not delay, neither will he be slow in anger against them, till he crushes their genitals and repays vengeance to all the nations. <laughs> That's how it goes. That's what everyone would have assumed was coming from Jesus when he starts talking about being faithful in prayer. But let's see how Jesus offers the same parable. He describes a a setup that was humanly rather hopeless for the plaintiff's point of view. She's a woman, so that means she's helpless, defenseless, without standing before the courts. She's coming and asking for justice, which means she has no man, no husband, no son, no uncle, father, or friend who will come for her. The corruption of the court system was just slightly less chaotic and corrupt. Well, maybe not less corrupt, but it was... Anyway, people would gather and shout out for their cases to be heard, and the judge would most likely respond to the best bribe, but no woman stood a chance. Everyone knew that scenario. Jesus, though, describes this helpless woman as coming over and over and over. He says, this evil judge does not fear God or care what people think. Those are the two elements in Middle Eastern culture that provided any hope of getting even the slightest amount of justice. The judge might have a little of the fear of God or some cultural respect for duty. This judge has 
neither and is proud of it. The woman kept coming over and over, and the Greek implies that there was a sort of inner awakening in the evil judge. He came to himself, much like it says of of the prodigal son in Luke 15, that he came to himself. He had a realization. What was his realization, the judge's? He realized that unless he finally did something for this woman, she would keep coming till he absolutely wore him out. So out of sheer desire to escape her persistence, he finally gave her justice. So Jesus is saying, among other things, that in the face of great, organized, established evil, now listen to this and let it, let it soak in for you in relation to our present circumstance. Jesus is saying that in the face of great, organized, established, monolithic evil that seems to have no pushback against it to successfully stop it from being evil, where the system is rigged against righteousness, even in such a system, persistence will wear down your enemy and you can win. But then... He switches the ending of the story. And he says, I'm going to amplify what the text actually implies, strongly implies. But we're not talking about you coming before an unjust, wicked judge, even though we are talking about a wicked, unjust system. We are talking about your holy, good, loving Father who loves you and loves what is right. Then he pulls back a curtain of mystery and says, in effect, now listen, when you are up against this kind of an evil system, whether it's for you privately or on a larger scale, like we are now in our country and in the West, you will be more and more, as the end of the age approaches, up against this kind of evil. And you must believe in the face of this kind of battle, that God will eventually avenge his own who cry to him night and day, though he seems to be taking a long time, for he will be holding back his wrath for the sake of both the wicked and the righteous. For the wicked, he will be holding back his wrath to give them room to repent because he longs for them to repent and be saved. He will be holding back his righteousness for the sake of his own to deepen their repentance and grow their faith and train them for their future rulership. See? That's a very different ending to this story than what the popular knowledge of the culture from Ben Sarah would have understood. Instead of a simple black and white statement that, well, the wicked shall be crushed and the Gentiles will be destroyed and God will not hold back his rage against them. No, he can't wait to thrash them. Jesus says, no, God will hold his anger at a distance for the sake of both the wicked and the righteous. And though it seems to be for a long time, see, Daniel 10, verse 1, there will be a great battle, and it will be a long battle. Though it seems to be for a long time, it is for a good purpose. Room to repent and the maturing of faith in God's children. You see this unfolded in some details in Revelation chapter 7, for instance, and in Daniel the, the, the closing chapter of Daniel talks about the, 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 those who are wise, who understand. Though the battle is long, they understand, and as a result, they are able to help people and help them understand so they can turn to what is right. That would be a great study all of its own. 
only mention it here, and you can read it for yourself. But then Jesus closes this teaching with this question. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find this kind of faith in the earth? This seems to imply that as we approach the close of this age, as evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, and as men and women become lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, and as men's hearts begin to fail them for fear from looking after what's coming on the earth, A faith in God's eventual and certain justice will not be easy to maintain. We will have to set ourselves with persistent, repetitive restating of our faith in God's faithfulness by asking and continuing to ask, seeking and continuing to seek, knocking and continuing to knock. Based on Scripture, experience, and the testimony of many other people. I believe these earthly, seemingly mundane, impotent, feeling actions that we take, whether it's quiet prayer or fasting or whether we feel the need, like I've said, to ball up our fist and seemingly strike at something invisible that we can't see. Uh, I believe all these things are are unleashing something in the spirit world of great influence and power. Uh, I heard a testimony a few days ago of a businessman who had uh, died. It's another uh, one of these amazing near-death experiences where he did die medically. He was gone for quite uh, quite some time, 20, 20 minutes is a long time when you're talking about death. And uh, when he he saw the Lord and the Lord talked to him and told him he had to go back. And so uh, as he was about to come back, he heard this angelic choir singing uh, this beautiful hymn that uh, moved him very deeply. And when he came back into his body, there were two people who couldn't sing very well standing over his bed from his church and they were singing that hymn. And of course, his natural mind immediately went into the wrong point of view of thinking that, well, that really wasn't a chorus of angels and it wasn't a great flood of powerful voices singing life back into me It was uh, really just these two. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit immediately corrected him and said, no, you've got it backwards. What they do in your room here over you was being powerfully reinforced in the invisible world by a hundred thousand other voices that took their two little loaves and fishes and were feeding a thousand issues with it. And I believe with all my heart, folks, please hear me. The devil is terrified whenever you pray. He is terrified when you lift your voice to sing. Doesn't matter how badly you sing. If you can't sing good, sing loud. With the high praises of God in our mouth, and a two-edged sword in our hand to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. When we lift our voices in praise, in prayer, in, in worship, in singing, in clapping our hands or whatever the Holy Spirit moves on you to do, that is uh, on the earthly level being reproduced in the spirit realm to a degree that is setting in motion forces and powers that can change the course of families, change the course of situations, change the course of elections, change the course of nations. If you will do it. 
See, the plan of the enemy is to get you to listen to me talk about it and say amen to it, but never do it. Get me to teach on it, but never do it. See, here's some scripture. Listen to these scriptures. I've always These scriptures have always helped me whenever I've had to stand uh, in this kind of place of prayer. Just bathe your brain with these scriptures. Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 30 and 31. I sought for a man or a woman among them that would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I could not find one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads. Do you see what the wrath of God is, folks? The wrath of God is not some temper tantrum that God finally uh, gives vent to uh, with his veins bulging in his neck and his fist bowed up and uh, having a temper tantrum. That's not it. He, the wrath of God is when he allows our own way to come to fruition and fullness of evil, and it destroys us. It destroys the nation. How many babies do we have to kill? How many more babies do we have to kill before we get it? And we are grieved enough to cry out to God for mercy on us. For mercy on us. Like I said in our last session, I remember in 1972, forgive me for saying this again, but 1973, I remember where I was and how I participated in the birthing of the murder of children by my attitude. So I stand in the gap and I plead to God, uh, have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on the part I played. Every time I gave vent to my own particular uh, sexual sin, I was giving place to that same spirit of murder, spirit of immorality, spirit of Baal and Moloch. And so I, I don't I don't stand in self-condemnation. I don't stand in fear of being rejected by the Lord. That's not it. I stand with the grief in my heart that is proper to what I'm praying about. But sometimes I don't feel the grief, but I stand anyway. I stand there now. I don't feel the grief now. But I say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, have mercy on us as a nation. Have mercy on us. The destruction that is wasting at noonday and that is waiting to destroy every city in America, every village, every hamlet in America, uh, the farms and the, 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 the seemingly safe rural areas. Uh, all the powers of darkness are waiting to attack because we have shed innocent blood. We have shed innocent blood. We have worshipped Baal and Moloch. We have given place to false gods. We've blasphemed your name. We've ignored your holy name. I say that because he's commanded me to say it. I say it not because I'm afraid he hadn't forgiven me yet. I say it because as I'm saying it, he is releasing spiritual battle in the spirit realm to push back that darkness and have possible mercy on the land, have mercy on the nation. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord search to and fro. You got that picture? Get that picture in your mind. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth. What's he looking for? Looking for someone through whom he can show himself strong on their behalf. Looking for someone through whom he can show himself strong. How about you right now, this moment? How won't you turn whatever mechanism you're listening to me on, turn it off and say, Father, here I am. Here I am. I'm, look, don't, you don't have to search anymore. I'm available. I'm available right now. And then get your body moving in cooperation with the Spirit in whatever form that takes. And begin to cry out, out loud. Begin to say, Father, have mercy on us. Lord, please have mercy on us. Please bring forth your true church. Bring down these counterfeit systems that have passed themselves off as church, 
that have disrespected your name, dis, uh, that, that have miscommunicated the real gospel, and that have built kingdoms for men to glorify themselves in. Deliver us, Father, from the desire to even participate in that and bring forth your true church, Father. Psalm 106, verse 23. He said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach in order to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. You see the principle of this? But see, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 7 says, There's none who calls upon your name. There is none who stirs up himself to take hold of thee. There is none who stirs up himself. Smith Wigglesworth used to say, If the Spirit ain't moving, then you move the Spirit. Now that sounds kind of disrespectful, but it's not disrespectful. It's obedience to this verse. I want to stir myself up to move into this kind of prayer. There is no cooperation with the Spirit in birth pangs unless we stir ourselves to cooperate. Isaiah chapter 37 verse 3. The children have come to the birth, but there's not enough strength to bring them forth. Anybody knows who knows anything about natural childbirth that you must cooperate with the rhythm of the birth pangs. Your body must cooperate with the natural order that is taking place inside in order to bring forth, or your body will not have the strength to do it. You've got to cooperate, and it's hard. It's travail. That's why travail is spoken of as both giving birth to a child and giving birth in prayer. There is a kind of prayer that is hard. It is a travail, and yet it is carried on the wings of eagles because the Holy Spirit is empowering and energizing it and helping you to do it. We don't know how to pray as we ought because of our weakness, so the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings which we can't even put into articulate speech, and he who knows the mind of the Lord prays the perfect will of God for the saints in this groaning that sometimes takes place in the Spirit. Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, My little children, I travail in birth again until Christ is formed in you. We're talking about national warfare, but we're also talking about people, individual people that we may love, who, who maybe their walk with the Lord is very weak, or maybe they've slidden, uh, backslidden. Maybe they've just turned away and gone back to the world. Or Paul says to the Galatians, uh, who he said, I birthed you, you're my little children. I birthed you in prayer, but now I'm travailing again that Christ be formed in you. I'm travailing in birth for the church, for the whole body of Christ, that Christ be formed in us, that we no longer be like children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine and the slights and cunnings and manipulations of men who are more interested in uh, their own propagation of their own kingdom than the kingdom of God. And women, too, sadly, some of them. And I'm not naming anybody. We're all capable of that sin, uh, especially those of us in ministry. I, I understand that. I'm not throwing stones, but I am travailing. I am crying out for the coming forth of the body of Christ in her true identity and in her fullness. And that has to be birthed in prayer by the, by the people who uh, Daniel chapter 12 re refers to. Uh, those who are wise and are able to teach others and who recognize what's happening and what's going on and are therefore not frightened of it, even though they many of them are being uh, attacked by it. Anyway, I'm saying all that to say this, folks. As we approach now the last few days before the election, if you're not awake spiritually about this election, uh, I'm not saying it's too late for you to be awakened. But I don't think anybody who listens to Nightlight is unaware, unaware. I don't think anybody 
who listens is not awake. Uh, I, I, I would be insulting you to even think that. But this is not the time to sit back and think, well, it's all okay. It's like Jeremiah. Well, when Daniel read in the prophet Jeremiah, this is what God intends in 70 years. He will send, uh, open the way for uh, Cyrus to to open the door for Israel, for Judah to go back and re reestablish Jerusalem and reestablish the city and the temple. Daniel's response was not to sit back and say, well, it's written, it'll come to pass. It doesn't matter whether I pray or not. No, he did just the opposite. He re-engaged himself more than ever, with, even with partial fasting. And like I said, please don't get legalistic about fasting. I, I, I've done studies and teachings in Nightlight on fasting, but let me just say to you, fasting is not a it's it's not it's not a hunger strike to talk God into listening to you. It's it's not a, a means of manipulating. It's it's the purpose of fasting is to focus your whole being on the importance of what you are bringing before the Lord in prayer. You uh you afflict your soul with fasting. That that means you're. You're making your inner being and your physical being agree by depriving your physical body of comfort and distraction that food always can bring. You're bringing your body into alignment with the burden that's on your heart. And fasting is a proper response to an emergency. How many of you know uh, when you get an emergency call from the hospital about a loved one, you don't stop on the way to the hospital uh, to get a burger. You go to the hospital with one thing on your mind, and that is the emergency. And fasting is a way of responding to a grievous or uh Difficult or dangerous circumstance. You see that all through the Old Old Testament, uh, and it's carried over in the New Covenant. Uh, um, and I, I don't want to do a whole teaching here on on fasting, but I I just want to please uh, awaken in you the urgency of the hour. Uh, if you receive this message at the time that you're supposed to receive it. You should be getting it somewhere around two to three weeks before the election. And uh, please be aware, as you are aware, please again forgive me. I, I don't mean to talk to you like you don't know. You, you're not children. You do know. Uh, if the forces of evil win the election, we will have another level of battle to engage in. But if Trump is reelected, and please, those of you who may think that I'm affirming Trump as Trump is no, he's, he's Cyrus. Trump is Cyrus. I also believe that President Trump has repented. I believe that he's seeking the Lord. I'm really a, a little bit worried about Christians who are so self-righteous and stuck on themselves that they keep pointing back to his sins, and how do they know he hasn't repented of those sins? And are they even praying for him? I prayed for Barack Obama, whose every decision I absolutely abhorred. I prayed for him. I still pray for him as a human being. I prayed for him because I was commanded in Scripture to pray. And yet here we are with a president who has kept every promise he has made, he has blessed and strengthened and affirmed the black community so much so that many, many black men and women are beginning to turn away from the Democratic Party and getting fully awake because they are seeing that Trump Trump uh, stepped in and began to pour money into black colleges that the Democrats never bothered to support. Uh, he increased income of black families, we had the highest rate of uh, uh, unemployment among black families since 
Records have been kept. No president preceding us has done that. Uh, Trump put in over 200 pro-constitutional judges. Even Ronald Reagan didn't do that. And yet, some of these Christians will still whine and complain that they don't like Trump because he talks ugly. Well, then vote for a pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, anti-family, anti-freedom, anti-economy Democrat. Go ahead. Vote for him. Uh, and then we'll, we'll be rid of the ugly-talking Donald Trump, and we will have, instead of him, a Marxist, pro-communist, pro-abortion, pro-sexual perversion, anti-American, anti-God Democrat. And you'll be happy then. I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. Not sorry at all. But I do, I do know we need, we need God's grace. Father, I pray for your mercy and grace upon all of us. Father, I pray that we will not align ourselves with evil and say that that's, that's okay because, uh, you know, we can categorize. I'm not a Republican. I don't, I don't support the Republican Party. I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I cannot support the evils on either side. But the clear and present danger is that the Democrats seek to undo and destroy all that would provide for the freedom of Christians to function and minister the gospel in our culture, as well as the freedom to just live a normal life. And we ask, Father, that you would once again have mercy upon us. We are guilty before you of all kinds of things. Father, we know that we are guilty. We know we're becoming more and more painfully aware of how guilty we are. And I pray, Father, I pray, Father, that you will give me the grace to be patient with those I disagree with, but not be compromising with evil. I pray, Father, that you will help us all stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that you will not have to allow the land to destroy itself by bringing upon ourselves our own full fruition of seeds of wickedness that we've been planting for 60 years. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.